So a mother was walking with her four-year-old daughter one day, and as they walked, the little girl reached down, picked up something, and put it in her mouth. Her mother responded by telling her not to put unknown things like that in her mouth. Why, she asked. Because they could have germs, and we don't know where they've been. The little girl asked pleasantly, surprised that her mother knew this, to which she said, how do, how do you know all these things, Mom? The mom replied, well, all moms know these kind of things. After a while, the little girl replied, oh, I get it. You have to pass the mom test, right, Mom? The mother replied, yeah, that's, that's kind of the way it is. The little girl then stated, I see. If you don't pass the mom test, then you just have to be a dad. <laughs> that's pretty much the way it is. So Mother's Day is an opportunity to stand up for the family, and I like to take every opportunity to do that, especially since the family is under attack from so many, so many ways. But the influence of a mom is indispensable on a child's life. And yet our society is trying to diminish that influence. Tender and strong mothers are needed today more, more than ever. Yet their voice is crying out that the real authority for the education of children, the raising children, should be the state. They should have the final word. But we need mothers who will say, no government, no authority will have the final authority in raising my child. This is a God-given role that I'm going to do with all of my heart. God made mothers to have a very special attachment with their children. It's a maternal bond. It starts before the baby's ever born, as this mother is carrying this child. We know more than ever, even from technology, that that is true. That that bond happens in those months as that baby is growing in the womb. And when that attachment takes place, this incredible growth begins to happen in the baby, even before birth. And when that attachment doesn't happen, that child will suffer later in life. And I know that there are some people who never had a strong bond with their mother. But most did, and this is what we're talking about to encourage the ability to nurture a child the way a mother can is a gift. To talk softly to the infant, to hold that infant and rock her. You ever see dads hold a little, little infant? It's kind of awkward. God just gave it to mothers to hold, hold the infant. I was always a little nervous to hold them. I didn't want to drop them. And, but a mother, it just, it's innate within them as this bond starts to grow. The child immediately starts to learn that they're safe and secure and they don't experience the anxiety that a child has who doesn't experience this bond. If a child never experiences this bond, they will experience anxiety very young in life and on into their adult life. They won't have the self-regulation, the self-control. This child is growing in so many ways that it's incredible. Even the brain grows faster and larger, physically larger, when there's a maternal bond. And we now know, because of technology that we didn't have years and years ago, that the brain actually has its own little special compartment to recognize faces. Isn't that amazing? You, some of you have iPhones that, you know, face, facial recognition. Well, your brain has that. And the, the little infant's brain recognizes its mother's face before any other because she's the one who has that 
face. And that brings this soothing security to the mother. As dads and grandpas, we should encourage that maternal bond. Just watch it. Don't be jealous or don't be impatient. Believe me, your bond will be stronger if that maternal bond exists. The child needs both, the maternal and the paternal bond, but it should be in that order. God made it that way. This beautiful granddaughter I have over here when she was just uh, barely walking, not talking, just barely walking, and Eric and Sarah lived in Jeff City, and up to that time, she had nothing to do with me. It was unbelievable how that could be, but only wanted her grandma. And so they called us, asked us to come up and babysit one time. So we get up there. She only wants her grandma. I'm used to it. Uh, I've had a lot of hard knocks, so I just didn't fight it. After a while, her grandma was in there blow-drying her hair, a lot of noise and everything. And Adela is knocking on the door, trying to get her grandma to take her. And she's in there. Finally, I'm, I'm over. She comes walking into me puts her hands up like this, like, you know what, I've exhausted all avenues. You're the only thing around here. Would you please hold me? So I picked her up. She went to sleep, and she's been coming to me ever since. It just works better when they attach to their mother and, their, and the females in their life, and then that strong bond with the fathers and grandfathers happens. You're indispensable, Mom. Your voice, your heart, your touch, all starts that child out in the right track. David wrote about this in his own formation in what is one of the most beautiful psalms in the Psalter, Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. Before one of them came to be, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. Abraham Lincoln, perhaps the greatest president we've ever had, credited everything good in his life to his mother actually his mother and his stepmother nancy hakes and this comes from a biography of lincoln that was written early in 1866 by um, josiah holland he says mr lincoln always looked back to her with an unspeakable affection all that i am or hope to be i owe to my angel mother blessings on memory and he says one of the darkest days came in his life when he was 10 years old when he sat on her grave the day they buried her because she was taken with a disease called consumption. They had just moved to Indiana and she was overwhelmed and she died. Josiah Holland writes, his character was planted in this Christian mother's life. Its roots were fed by this mother's love those who have wondered at the truthfulness and earnestness of his mature character have only to remember that the true was true to the soil from which it sprang. And then, after her passing, a stepmother came into her life named Sarah Bush. He says, 
Stepmother Sarah Bush and stepson quickly forged a loving bond. His mind and mine, what little I had, seemed to run together, move in the same direction, Sarah said. She treated Lincoln as if he was her own flesh and blood. By offering love, kindness, and encouragement, he returned the affection, calling her mother. In 1861, Lincoln confided to a relative that his stepmother had been his best friend in this world and that no son could love a mother more than he loved her. Today, I brought a message to mothers, and we're going to look in Paul's last letter, the Apostle Paul, his last letter that he wrote to Timothy. It's Second Timothy. Tough times had fallen the Apostle Paul. He writes this letter from prison. It's his second prison epistle. The first one was Philippians, and the second would be his second letter to Timothy, and then this letter would shortly be written, and Paul would be executed. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. We don't know exactly where Paul was, but he states right here that he was in prison in Rome, and he was probably in a prison called the Mamertine Prison. It still exists today. It was a very, very dismal underground chamber, only one single hole of light, damp in the inside. Paul had already had his trial. I think this is what he is saying in chapter 4. At my defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The book is written just before the apostle is executed. In fact, this book contains his last will and testament. Listen to these words. For I am ready, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. For the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. So here he is in prison, and Luke was the only one with him. Demas has abandoned him. Crescens is gone on assignment to Galatia. Titus was off in Dalmatia. And things had deteriorated in Ephesus, and he's worried about Timothy. So he's writing him the second letter before Paul exits this earth to receive his reward with the Lord. But what's so amazing about the Apostle Paul is his attitude. Attitude makes all the difference in the world. The older I get, the more convinced I am that attitude produces the quality of life that we have, your attitude, and you have to adjust it. We have this radio. I inherited it from my mother. It's not the best quality, but it will work if you tune it in. Otherwise, if it gets off, you get that static, which is very irritating. And sometimes our attitudes are irritating. They have to be tuned every day. But instead of feeling sorry for himself, alone, languishing in pity and apathy and in prison, Paul believes he's in prison because God wants him there, not because it's gone badly for him and that Caesar is in control. He calls himself a prisoner of the Lord, not a prisoner of Caesar. 
So in the second letter to Timothy, he writes, I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. He's speaking of Timothy as he reflects on this young man whom he has mentored and now left as pastor in Ephesus, and Timothy is over many other pastors in Ephesus. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of my hands, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So he's charging Timothy, but he refers back to Timothy's faith, the origin of it being his grandmother and his mother. So what I would like to do is mention three qualities that mothers, godly mothers have that produce such an impact on their children. As I mention these three qualities, I'll get to them in a minute. They will be doing three things. They will be fanning the flame or discovering the gift in their child. They will be helping to guard the good deposit, which Paul mentions here, which is the faith, their faith, so that that faith doesn't deteriorate and it grows into a strong faith in their adult life and teaches them to preach the word or share the Lord, share their faith with others. The Apostle Paul believed that God had a plan for his life. He taught that to Timothy, and this book teaches us to believe that God always has a plan. No matter how things appear, God is in control. I remember George Wood referring, when he went to Disneyland, took his family uh, years and years ago, they rode a ride called Pirates of the Caribbean, and at one point, this boat plunges down, and he for just an instant, he got this feeling, I wonder if this thing's going to crash. And then he says, no, this boat's on, on rails. It doesn't matter what it feels like. doesn't matter what it make it look like. This boat's on rails. That's the way it is with us. No matter what the circumstances are, we should remind ourselves our life is on rails. It's God's plan for our lives, and we're living it out. If we're living it with fear and timidity, then we're not going to enjoy it. But if we can grasp that, God has a plan, he's in control, we can relax. And God stands by his promises. When God makes a promise, he stands by it, he keeps it. You know you've had promises where people didn't honor their promise. You bought something, you had a service done, and they didn't stand by it. Nothing could be more irritating. Some of you heard my story about our vacuum cleaner in Argentina. So we, we lived in Tucumán, we hadn't been there very long, we needed a vacuum cleaner, I bought a brand new one, I brought it home, plugged it in, smoke came out. Wouldn't even work, just So I go back to the store, told them couldn't use it, just plugged it in. I need another one. They said, well, we'll send it off to Buenos Aires. You'll get it in six months. We'll repair it. And I said, I don't want it repaired. I want a new one. I didn't get to use it. I don't want a repaired one. They said, well, we don't do that. So I just sat down, very frustrated. I never had anybody do that to me. And I was figuring out what I was going to do. And as people came in, I started telling them about their policy here. So, For instance, it had guaranteed. And I said, that doesn't mean guaranteed. I just bought a new vacuum cleaner here. And they're not going to fix it. They're not going to give me a new one. And people started saying, is that true? Are you doing that to this man? Pretty soon they brought me out a new vacuum cleaner. 
But I had to work to get that guarantee. They didn't give it. This letter starts out to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. He's in his last hours before he dies, and he has this clear conscience. He can remember all the sermons preached, the shipwrecks, all the confrontations, and he has not a sinless life, but a blameless life, a perfect heart as Christians should be. Now, here are these three qualities that I want to emphasize to mothers today. The first one is stay tender, mothers, and in doing that, you're going to be fanning the flame of your child's gift, or you're going to be helping discover the gift in every child, what their gift is. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you. Just the memory of Timothy brought this tenderness. Timothy had a tender heart, and Paul says he got it from his mother and his grandmother because they had tender hearts. They had passed that on to Timothy. Timothy was not like Paul at all. Paul was an extrovert. He was confident. He had a lion's personality. Timothy was an introvert, and he was shy, but it didn't matter. Paul appreciated him, and he helped, he helped Timothy discover his gifts. I would say, Mother, this is one of the greatest things you do, this tenderness with which God has endowed you to help every one of your children, help each of them discover their gift. It's in your heart. It's there to help them. You'll see it. God will give you insight. And then you help that child persevere to discover that gift, to have a passion for that gift, and then use it. The second thing is to stay true to your faith. And in so doing, you're going to help your child guard their faith. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your mother and then in your grandmother. It was a genuine faith penetrated in their life. The sincere, genuine faith. And Timothy had the same genuineness, the sincere faith. There was no doubt about it. It's what set Timothy off. And in so doing that, if we have this kind of sincere and genuine faith, we're going to help our children guard their faith. I love the scripture out of Proverbs 22. It says, start your children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. And the word old there doesn't mean 90 years old. It means when they reach the age when they think they're an adult, which might be 14 or 15 or 16. When they think they're old enough to figure out their own way, they'll choose your faith. Teach them the right way, and when they're old enough to figure out, they'll choose it. It's a powerful instruction from the Proverbs. But in the best way you can pass your faith on to your children is live it. If you have a genuine faith, that faith is so powerful to your children. I have to say that in a world where the enemy is trying to take your child's faith, whether it is through pornography, whether it is through the the media, whether it is through the peer pressure at high school, whether it is through this 
all of the social media to be something, that is the enemy going after your child's faith. And you can sit back and let it happen while they steal your child's faith, or you can live this genuine faith and help guard the faith in your children. It's our most precious treasure, our children. And then lastly, stay authentic. And in doing this, you're going to teach them to share their faith, or as Paul says, preach the word. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. So where does a child learn self-regulation? Where do they learn how to control their emotion? Where do they learn this? From us. Where do they, where do they learn to not have self-regulation? From us. If we have this authentic faith, it doesn't mean we are perfect. The Lord knows that. It doesn't harm uh, a house to have conflict in the house. What harms a house is when there is unresolved conflict and you never address it. Let's say that you blow up and you lose your temper and you yell or say things. Who's not going to do that at some point? But if you never address it, if you never go back and explain to anyone who is there, look, I'm sorry, I had a bad moment there, there's no need for that, I'm sorry, address it. You only strengthened your children, and you only help them to learn how to control. We're not always going to be able to control, and when we don't, we have to own what we did. It's unresolved conflict that is the danger. When you work at resolving it, and it's hard, because it means you have to go back and own it, you have to say I didn't have perfect parents, but I had parents with perfect hearts. My parents were like thousands of Americans who left the Midwest in their young years and moved to California seeking a better life. And my parents, they, they knew hard work. They started out with a dairy, then they started a truck business, and they worked at it. My mom drove 18-wheelers, and we grew up in farming and trucks and my parents didn't have the best examples growing up, but they were serving God. They were going to church. They didn't know how to do everything right, but they had perfect hearts. And they would acknowledge when they messed up. That is all it takes to raise kids to guard their faith. It's when we sweep it under the carpet and act like it never happened. Kids are smarter. I mean, four years, five years, six years old, they figure out, Mom, Dad, when you're not being authentic. They know. But when you're real, you will impact their life. And, you know, God doesn't use somebody's very often. If you have a lot of talent or you have a lot of fame, God can rarely use you because you're too arrogant. He only uses somebody's when they renounce that that means nothing. He most of the time uses nobodies because they don't have any claim to fame and they, they have humility in their life and that's who God uses. Whoever he uses, he uses people who will share a dependence on him. Not a self-reliance, but actually say, I am depending on you. When we do that, then this spirit of fear that Paul was talking to Timothy doesn't overwhelm us. But we have this self-control, this willingness to actually wait on God. 
Paul has in mind when he speaks about this a measure of control over one's thinking and actions that allows a balanced outlook on the situation. It gives us control, not of this self-control, but of this, of this power of a sound mind. God's in control here, and he is going to help me. You can tell when children have been raised in a home where there has been no authentic faith or there's no, no authenticity, where people are not resolving their conflict, not addressing it, because they'll have a huge amount of anxiety as an adult, and they won't know how to deal with that anxiety. So we give our children such a gift when we give them a home where there's peace and there's self-control. And when we mess up, we acknowledge it because we're preparing a future husband who's going to know how to treat his wife, a future wife who's going to know how to treat her husband, a future father who's going to know how to treat his kids, a future mother who's going to know. That's the classroom where they learn. You don't learn this stuff in a book afterwards. You learn it in the home where you grow up. Earl Campbell was an NFL pro football player. He started out at the University of Texas playing football, and he was good. And when he went to college, he, his faith was kind of lured away. You know, you kind of think you know everything when you get to college, more than your parents sometimes. And he got too busy for his mom and dad and too busy for God. One day, he got tired of dorm food and wanted some of his mom's home cooking, so he called mom and wanted to come home for some of that home cooking, and wanted to know if he could bring some of his buddies. She asked him if he was loving Jesus. He said, now mom, you know I'm, I'm kind of busy up here. And she said, well, when you get back to loving Jesus, you come home anytime you want, and you bring your buddies. I think that's a mom who's trying to teach her son how to live. I think we had that quality in our home. My wife had this intuitive desire to watch our kids, and if something was amiss in their faith, she would zero in on it. She would hone in on it quick. She wouldn't let it go by, and she would pull them back. Sometimes a bad attitude is like pulling weeds. It's watching it, especially in those years of 10, 11, 12, 13 you just don't let it go by. And I tell, I tell young parents when they're four, five, six, or seven, and they're smarting off with a smart mouth, don't just laugh and say, oh, he's cute. Yeah, wait a few years. That's not going to be so cute. Work on it. Work on their attitudes. From the time they're little, work on them having the kind of faith that is real. And then when they get to that age, just like Proverbs says, the time where they're going to choose, they're going to choose to do the right thing. They need all of our help till they leave our house. And when they do, they're going to choose to love God and live for God just the way they watch their mom and they watch their dad, they watch their grandpa, they watch their grandma live. And you will have given them the very best gift that a mother or a grandmother could give them. I honor you mothers, and I, I have a heart for the home, and children need you today. Grandchildren need you. Great-grandchildren need you. So give those gifts to your children, and may God bless you.